This is the Left Field Thinking Podcast, and we're back with a bang. To kick off season two, I'm joined by the awesome Britt Brody, who is head coach of the NCAA Div 1 program at UC Davis. We also get a cool cameo from Paige and Daisy. I hope you all enjoy this feature-length episode. Yeah, have you, have you been listening to the podcast? I listened to him after I sent you that email back and I was like, you wrote me back and you're like, yeah, we're trying to interview all kinds of coaches. And I, so I went on there and I was like, Darren Cheeseman, Craig Parnum, like all kinds of coaches. Sure. <laughs> um, so I went through and listened to them, but I, I didn't even know that they existed before. Me and Elliot just really enjoyed talking to different people. Yeah. I mean, it's funny during this time, you know, normally I don't have time for the you know, all the professional growth and connection and networking that that's happened in the last six months. I feel like I, I've developed so much as a coach and, you know, and talking to so many great minds and people that you agree with people that you disagree with, you know, it's, it's great. And, um, yeah, it just makes me even more jealous that you guys are getting back on the turf. What's been the best thing you've done over lockdown then in terms of learning? So, like I said, this, um, you know, this group that I think Katie called the coalition and it's maybe like 35 total people, handful of U.S., mostly women, but two guys. And then pretty much men from England, Holland, Australia, South Africa. And, you know, Katie would literally DM someone that like, you know, Allison Annan came on and and chatted with us for like three, four hours. And... (laughs) I mean, it was fantastic. Well, maybe not four hours, but it was awesome because she came in and she, you know, had a something a presentation created that she had obviously made for someone who paid her a lot of money to do that presentation. <laughs> so she kind of, you know, walked us through that. And then it just led to this general conversation, yeah. which, you know, I think is what you guys try to create in you know, the hangout space and everything else. And the only reason this other one has been, I, they're just different. But one of the things that I really struggle with, I've actually talked to Jimmy Coleman about, is, man, you English people, like, jump in the conversation, you know? It, it drives me bonkers sometimes because there's, you know, I look at the participants on there and I, I know the names and I'm like, wow, that is an awesome hockey mind. But they keep themselves so, muted the whole time. And I'm like, come on. Yeah. Me and Elliot have found that quite frustrating. The, the moments where you're like, right, okay, we feel like we've primed everyone. Here we go. Uh, Nothing. Crickets. <laughs> Nothing. Crickets. Yeah. Well, I, I had a good laugh when, you know, Elliot is very, you know, calm face. And you know, there was one point where someone said, well, should I ask a, you know, I think maybe it was you. You were like, oh, should I ask individuals? And he goes, no, I'm happy to wait. This is how I coach as well, or something like that. And I just died. And then, of course, I jump in because I, I, I don't like that quiet space. You know, I've presented enough, not on, well, with my own team, obviously, on Zoom meetings. And, you know, hopefully the rapport is a little bit better there, right? But, yeah. you know, when you're doing presentations and you need people to grab a stick and, like, jump out and, yeah. and do some demos, and no one will grab a stick. I'm like, we play field hockey, right? Like, I know you, you, you've played on the national team, so I'm pretty sure you can do it. And they won't jump in. So, so having been the presenter, I always jump in now because. Yeah. Well, I, like I, I mean, I'm, I'm quite gobby on like different webinars and stuff like that because I'm just like, well, this is my opportunity to ask the question of the people who are there. So yeah. that's why I'm here, surely, to try and get some more information. But not everyone's like that. 
Well, and that's my idea too. Like, yeah. I honestly don't care if I'm putting something out there that sounds entirely stupid. Yeah. Like I have no problem being stupid. I, I do it often. I do it daily. So, um, and that, you know, and that'll be the trailer for this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Cheers. <laughs> this to me, um, I'm really nervous. I have a lot of anxiety. I think if it's something that, that you are nervous about, then, you know, the second it's done, you've grown and you've become better. What, so you've got to put yourself out there. Yeah, what we've actually found is ev everyone we've done it with has gone at the end of it. Actually, that was really good. Like, because I've been able to think about things and or be challenged around things in a different way. Yeah. So I think the, the program, uh, the, the process itself is quite... Um, it's quite a good development tool. I mean, yeah. this has been the favorite thing that me and Elliot have done because firstly, we're learning from other people, but just through the conversation, things emerge and you're like, oh, actually, yeah, that's something I haven't thought of. Or yeah. You yeah. Might it's good if you get someone you can completely disagree with. Yeah. That's very yeah. exciting. But yeah, so it should be fun. Elliot might join us tonight. I don't know. Well, how you guys bounce off of each other is really enjoyable. So... Yeah, I, used yeah, I said to something about my four-year-old and, and not being able to to take the call earlier. And I was like, ah, oh, my four-year-old would be in the car. And he goes, well, you mean another four-year-old, you know, will be in the first one. So, yeah. I, yeah, I, I, used to, I used to coach him. I was the assistant uh, when he, he he played National League for a bit in England. And um, he was such like a teacher's pet. So we kept in touch a little bit on Facebook, but not really. We'd see each other around like you do. But then two years ago, he started coaching on the Dice program and I came back and, yeah, basically just bullied each other for two years. Uh, right, okay, so are you ready for it? Oh, I'm ready. Brace yeah. yourself. Yeah. Right, okay, so to start off with, if you could do just a little bit of an introduction, who you are, what you do, where you're from, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Well, I'm Britt Brody and I'm from the US, obviously, but I'm from a family with uh, three kids, uh, smack dab in between two boys. And my older brother is incredibly intelligent and very athletic. And I am neither, I'm just super competitive. So I grew up trying to, to beat him at everything. Uh, possible so uh, that that's what kind of led me to you know a pretty high level in, in hockey and I never played for the US unfortunately I was a alternate often uh, but um, I was a goalkeeper and played four years of uh, division one hockey over here and like I said tried to make the national team for a number of years afterwards but we didn't have the the structure um, it's crazy in the US that you play for four years and then you're either on the team or you're you're not so now it's a little bit different fortunately and so then i went into to coaching so that i hopefully continue to have an opportunity to to play and train um and so i had been an assistant coach at american university under steve jennings who's one of the top coaches in the u.s and then coach at university of louisville with pam buston who's a also an olympian and a top coach in the u.s and then went over to duke university with her and fortunate enough to coach in a couple national championships before coming to my current position uh, as a head coach at the University of California at Davis. And um, I've been here going on my fourth season now. And then I also do a bunch of coaching uh, with the US juniors and I was fortunate enough to 
uh, worked with Janneke Schottman as an assistant coach for the under-21 team for about two years and uh, coaching in the Junior Pan Ams and the Junior World Cup uh, in Santiago. So that's, that's me. How did you find the transition from uh, assistant to head coach? I guess I was an assistant for much longer than most people are in the U.S. And the structure of Division One, even, the top 10 teams uh, have a lot more funding usually and, and play at a very high level. And the bottom, let's say, 15, 20 teams, their resources are just vastly different in terms of the scholarships they're able to give student-athletes, their surfaces sometimes that they play on the amount of people in their coaching staff. And so to be an assistant or associate head coach, you know, like, like Katie Bam is at a top program was really satisfying to me because I could coach the very best and I could be a part of that very exciting atmosphere. And when I started thinking about becoming a head coach, I, you know, you'd start at a, a lower level and, you know, maybe work your way up. And I, I thought I'd really miss that top level of play and, you know, the challenges that it presents. But I found that it's exactly the same. When I took over this program out here, we were very bad. I think our, our first season, we were 1-17, in 17, which I have never been a part of a program like that before. And uh, there were some things going on. I mean, I had a, a, a player almost die of tachycardia, actually, on my second day. And one, yeah, so there were some injury issues. But Going one and 17 and trying out my own ideas and, you know, trying to set my own principles and philosophies and working with these kids and, and leading that in addition to leading my own staff, which is another, you know, different part that I hadn't experienced. It was awesome. And the challenges are exactly the same. They were just at a different level at the time, a different level of play, but the kids were exactly the same. They wanted they wanted to be good. They wanted to work hard. They wanted more information. Um, so that was really satisfying. And then now, you know, three years later, we're a really competitive team. And, uh, you know, we're looking to continue that trajectory. And, I mean, we play at a very high level and we get really great kids to, to come to our university. So, um, you know, it's just about starting at a different point on the graph, I guess. Yeah. What's the, what was the sort of pressure of results like in a season when it's, you know, your first season, head coach, you've been an assistant for a period of time where you know you've had good results and then you come in and your results are pants how'd you deal with that and what were the external pressures like around that you know you can read books all the time and say oh it's about the journey not the result and this and that and you know if you're winning you can be like absolutely um and then when you're losing and not just losing but you know you get through halfway through the season and you still don't have your your first win you either can choose to to live that or you can just, you know, choose to kind of, you know, throw it around. And I was just, I was incredibly fortunate that my, my team at the time, we only had 18 players, I think. They were just so mature and we, we lost a lot, but we were in the game. And so, they, you know, if you're uh, you know, looking at the stats or, you know, whatnot, and be like, we got smashed. But in terms of the individual moments, we were, we were competing, we were hanging our schedule was completely inappropriate for our team. You know, that's, that's the other part. We had one of the hardest schedules in the entire country. It was stupid. It was just stupid. But, you know, they actually did that. We actually did live in the moment when we actually did enjoy the process. And I think we were able to see that we were, we were progressively getting better. The result just wasn't any different. And, 
we could take the lens and actually focus on on our progression and on our development. And I've never been a part of a team that that did that quite as well as this one did. And uh, again, it was kind of forced because, you know, we didn't have too many wins to celebrate. (laughs) But um, uh, it was it was an incredibly empowering experience to be a part of and not one that I ever want to go through again. But it was awesome. Yeah. My first club job, I took over a team that had just been relegated from the top regional league in England. It was a men's team and we got relegated again. And throughout that season, you know, we played some pretty nice hockey, we just couldn't score goals. Couldn't score. So it was like constant loss by a goal. And throughout that season, I found it really tough. This whole idea of imposter syndrome and do I know anything? Am I, am I cut out for this? Uh, should I be here? And I really struggled with it throughout that year. You know, you, you, in front of the players, you're sort of bullish. It's like, no, we're, we're going <laughs> to be fine. We're doing the right thing, blah, blah, blah. But those moments away from people, yeah. I really struggle with that self-doubt. I don't know how, if there was anything in there for you, really. Well, definitely. But, you know, perhaps dissimilar was I'm someone who really values showing my own vulnerability to my team. I think that allows, uh, I think it did allow for us to come together and, and be a unit more quickly. So I think that kind of mindset to intentionally share certain things with them, let, let it not weigh as much on me. And then I think, I think all the players really enjoyed that year. Again, they were able to kind of take the spotlight off the wins and losses. And I think because they were enjoying it and, you know, feedback from all their parents and uh, how much fun they were having, which I really value and how much better they felt like they were getting, like their technical skills when I arrived, honestly, like were not good. And so, you know, we, we competed with a lot of great teams and, and we hung in some games that we really had no business being a part of. So, you know, in some respects, it was like, I, I really had the freedom to, to try out different ideas, you know, in terms of tactical stuff, because we, we probably weren't in a position to win the game anyway. Um, and I think that also accelerated our kind of hockey IQ, not just for me and my staff, but also the players. So. Right. So we'll actually move on to the proper questions, because otherwise I'll just waffle all night. So from your experiences, how is the game changing? And where is it going next? When I saw that question on there, I would not consider myself someone who's really hockey knowledgeable in terms of around the world. Um, in fact, you know, I, I rarely watch men's hockey, which, you know, you know, there's a big weakness. You know, I'll pop the HL on, you know, sometimes, but I watch it as a spectator, not as someone who's really evaluating it. So I'm not very knowledgeable, I guess, in that, but in the NCAA, you know, we tend to, to follow the international trends. And so that's all women over here. It's been interesting to see how the quarters have affected hockey. I really, I, I don't like quarters. I think it's becoming a, a more highly coached game. One of the things I hate about basketball is that it's, it's the coach performing often. Man, do they have like 8,000 timeouts, it seems like sometimes. So, you know, I like to see the players do that. I like to see you know, how the interchange system affects the game and how that can kind of uh, make changes within the game. So, you know, I'm not a big fan of the quarters and I don't know how that's going to continue and take, take the game, but it's not as player dom- dominant, I guess, in my opinion. So, 
you know, I've been learning a lot about man-to-man and zone, I think, in the U.S., and I've asked, you know, we've talked about this in, in different chats and whatnot, that zone is very normal over here. And I, I think in men's hockey and in, in different hockey cultures, it's almost entirely man-to-man. So, you know, to, to see that, you know, Belgium playing more zone and conversations about deep zonal defense and going in and out of zone, I, I think that's interesting to me because I didn't really know it was an issue. <laughs> This is something I've said, like, there's been bits of zone going on in men's for ages, but it's been virtually, in, in large swathes of the women's game, it's been the way to press. And yeah. I think the aerial is the, probably the only difference, really, that has prevented zone previously. So it's, but that has been interesting. Yeah. Uh, I think people, it's, it's like the emperor's new clothes it's the key topic to talk about right now, though. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, have to, I have to confess, I do get a little bit bored by it. As a, yeah. oh, it must be one, it must be binary. Well, most of the man-to-man presses will have an element of zone in them. Most zone presses have an element of man-to-man in them. There are yeah. moments where you do have to recognise that your man's over there. So, yeah, I think to a certain extent it's a bit, it's a bit of Emperor's New Clothes, but... Well, I mean, all you do is, you know, if you're playing man down, you know, there's one elimination. You can't play man to man, like strictly. Yeah. So, you know, I, I, I often think that people are over talking or overthinking it. But, you know, I have that thought in my head. And then, then I'm like, oh, maybe I just don't even know what they're talking about. <laughs> and that's why, that's why I don't think it's that much of a big deal. So, uh, you know, I've been trying to learn this time in terms of quarters do you think it can create more opportunities for player-centered and player-led sort of player ownership environments it definitely can yeah it certainly can especially i mean there's two minutes in between what are you going to tell your kids really um but you know i just i just feel like um you know, the, the player's sense of tempo and how to change that tempo and how to make adjustments in real time, I'm seeing it less anyway in the in NCAA. So versus, you know, they change a press at a quarter or they, you know, they're making different tactical changes on the quarter. Um, yeah. So That certainly happens over here. I know our, our junior international teams do a bit of that. And wrongly, rightly, I suppose it's an easy interval to do it in segue yep. into another one. Uh, maybe there's some learning lost in that. Actually, the, yep. introducing it in the middle of the chaos and going, ooh, you can't do it. Well, yeah. you can, but you've got to work out what you need to do to do it. So, yeah, there's certainly something in that. I think the, the tempo thing for me is something in hockey is, is going to reemerge because I think the nature of quarters... I'll sort of tap into what Craig Parnham said, actually. So the nature of corners, uh, quarters was, I thought when it was coming in, it was just going to allow players to play longer. So like older players, um, better players to be on the pitch for longer. And he said he, he railed against that with the US team and actually said, no, let's see how much more we can squeeze in terms of the tempo. Yeah. And I certainly think that's been the impact on the game. The game has ramped up again in speed. My feeling is that at the moment it's so frenetic uh, in, in speed that this idea of tempo and pace and how players can control the speed of a game and the rhythm of a game, I think will come back because there's got to be some sort of juxtaposition to just all out, you know, meat grinder intensity on the pitch. Yeah. And the team, the team that's able to do that will, will probably get a lot of success, I think. So 
uh, I think that might be something that re-emerges. So I'd agree, I'd certainly agree with that. Yeah, it's interesting the, the tactical changes though. I mean, we still try to make tactical changes on, what we do is on a substitution. So we're not quite at the ability to do it on the fly, but you know, changing from a, a three to a four back and you know, different sitters or screens, however you want to call them and, and this and that. And so we still try to do that, but because it's only you know, halfway through a quarter, let's say, or something like that, by the time everyone on the field is really on the same page, like, are we taking advantage of that transition or, you know, uh, trying to make the, make the difference. So I don't know, we're playing around with it uh, more and more. I really try to have an interchange on my team, one that is intentionally really high tempo and we try to really increase our work rate. You know, that being said, we don't have, you know, GPS capability, catapult and, you know, all the stuff the U S national team had, but, you know, I think that was one of the edges of that, that, women's team had, you know, especially working with Dave Hamilton and, and Craig. And so that's a little bit lost. You know, that's probably one of the reasons, you know, coming from the US that, that I'm not a fan because we lost our edge. Yeah. Oh, well. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> oh, well. Yeah. Um, right. Reflecting which mistakes that you have made in your career have been the most valuable and why? Yeah, I make a lot of mistakes. I make a ton of mistakes. And I think, uh, you know, like I said earlier, I think mistakes and admitting the mistakes are, are hugely important uh, to your team culture and to development. I think some of the, the most powerful words out there, out there are, I screwed up. And, and so I really encourage my team to often screw up as well. But I, I guess my, my biggest mistakes were when I was working as the assistant for the under 21 team with, with Janneke Schottman. My role was to do the scouting and basically present to her and then she would take that information and, and create game plan and present to the team and, and all this other stuff. And I think um, it, was an, it was an opportunity that I wasn't quite prepared for. Uh, I didn't have the knowledge that she thought I had maybe, or uh, I was kind of you know, thrown into the deep end without, without my little floaty. Uh, and I, I sunk often and you know, I, would, I would present things to her and she'd be like, you know, she's Dutch, so she'd, Bam. Um, and it, it really made me grow. It made me grow very quickly. You know, I, I remember a time with the junior Pan Ams were going to play Argentina and, you know, I was talking about their press and, you know, at this point I'm like, of course it's how Argentina presses. But at the time I'm like, they're like in these boxes and, uh, you know, their lines are very straight and it looked very different than, than what I had watched really before. And some ways I, I really, made a lot of mistakes but then in other ways because I had let's say fresh eyes I really brought things down to what they they really were rather than what I anticipated that they're going to be and so there were a lot of uh, low moments with with me working with Yannicka but there were a lot of really high moments too so I think those were my biggest screw-ups because you know then I wanted to impress her of course you know so I was like every single video and I'm going through and I'm not sleeping at all because I want to make sure the five clips I pull for her are perfect. And like, I remember presenting to her, uh, before we played, uh, it was either China or Japan in the junior world cup. And I was talking about their defensive structure and she was like, well, they just take up space. They're blocks. They take up space. You have to go around. And I was like, well, yeah, but blah, 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 I gave her like all this information. She was like, you just have to go around. And I was like, 
okay, yep. <laughs> so, you know, I thought that was really valuable for me, you know, when detail is important and, and when it just, it is what it is and how to, to translate that information to usable information to then to the, the players. So I think those were, those were some of my, my biggest failure moments that I felt approximately this large. <laughs> so. I think Dutch people do have a knack of making you feel feel small, don't they, with the directness. In in terms of making those those uncomfortable moments really valuable and and growing moments, what what do you think you need around you to personally to to do that? I'm a big proponent of the idea of psychological psychological safety, and that's what I try to develop on on my team because. If you're not willing to, to take the risk and, and be wrong, then I think your ability to grow is much smaller. So my personality is one that I'll stand up in front of a you know, convention and you know, voice my opinion. And, and like I said, you know, it, it could be completely wrong. And, and I'm, you know, I can certainly get embarrassed and, and have anxiety about that. But at the same time, I, I think I have, um, oh, what's the term? Psychological bravery, uh, which is another term for you know, I guess no emotional intelligence perhaps, but um, you know, I think, I think most people need that, that layer of trust that they're not going to be shot down and not smashed. And if they've gone through that as, as I kind of did, you know, what's their level of resiliency? You know, does that, does that keep them pretty small and, and unable to kind of contribute again, or are they right back up there ready to get smashed again? And that's, you know, kind of the, the person, you know, I try to be. Um, you know, to put yourself out there to be wrong. So, with that in mind, this is a very slick segue. Now, Elliot, Elliot would be impressed. <laughs> the best motivational uh, motivational environment you've created, and why? Oh, I think I mean that's that's the basis for our team culture at UC Davis. Is you know we have our core pillars of our of our culture, and um, you know it's integrity, cohesion, and fun. If those are the things that we're trying to uphold daily, you know, integrity is, is a really big one for me. You know, if I say that, that I want an atmosphere where the kids are allowed to screw up and screw up all the time, well, I better hold true to that. Of course, there's a difference between, you know, performance versus growth um, and all kinds of different layers in between. And I think that you go back and forth as an individual, as you go back and forth as a team, but, you know, the idea that that's okay uh, I think promotes our playing style, which is one of attack. We want to go forward as much as possible. Like, I don't want you worrying about the counter defense. And so that idea that I can say something and it might be crazy, but no one's going to smash me down. And I can look to make perhaps a, a risky play on the ball to try to pick up the tempo and move forward. Uh, it's a really bad turnover. Well, there's a time and a place and we'll talk about that, you know, but the fact that you're looking for it, that's a great thing. And, uh, you know, to encourage that. So I think that's the best motivation that, that I can think of. And, you know, again, when we walk out on, onto the turf, I want to see nothing but smiles out there. You know, I think in the NCAA environment, especially where, where kids are earning scholarship to play, it can get into a pretty dicey situation if, if the kid isn't really having, you know, all that much fun and uh, not enjoying that aspect but they're kind of locked in because financial reasons at that university that can go down a, a pretty dark hole. So, you know, just an atmosphere of, of we want to be out here. We can't wait to play. And I think that's going to be exacerbated obviously by, by this COVID-19 and, and the time that we haven't spent on the turf, but 
you know, every single day. And we work our tails off on the turf. We, you know, they're not going to be smiling all the time when, when we're running and doing drills, but the face of fun in hockey, you know, my face is like that, uh, but I love it. And I want all the kids to love it. And if you love it, you go for it. So in terms of those, those pillars, integrity, cohesion, fun, you said you want people smiling. What does that look like for the staff? So how, how do you, as someone, you said that was a, a difficult transition or a new transition when you go to a head coach. How do you bring those smiles to the face of the staff? And do, do they follow, do they buy into those pillars as well? Is it lived through every, every stakeholder? Yeah, we better. We better. If we, if we don't and we ask it of the team, then, you know, that's, that's pretty much the opposite of integrity, I'd say. So, uh, yeah, we definitely try to live those things. One of, one of my biggest challenges in, in my role that I'm still trying to, to grow in is being a program manager in terms of, of staff and, and how to delegate and keep the enjoyment level high while also keeping uh, my expectations very high. And, you know, just logistics, they don't get paid very much. <laughs> and they're probably not from California. So uh, they're away from their families. And so having consistency in my, in my staff has been a challenge and is a place I need to, to grow. Like I said, I'm, I'm losing my, my top assistant, who's an English woman from Canterbury. And I'm losing her because her J1 visa is up. And she would stay forever. So I'm like constantly going through this new thing. But yeah, I mean, I, I think empowering assistant coaches, like nobody wants to just be a puppet. You know, I, I only want to work with coaches that want to contribute and want to bring their own ideas to the table and, and love hockey. So I want to surround you know, our student athletes with people that fit into our culture as well. And I have one of the things, you know, with my screw ups with Yannicka, that's how we operate on my staff, actually, is that we'll go through a season and I'll, I'll pretty much scout everybody, but my assistants will alternate in who they're scouting and they'll present to the rest of the staff. They don't like it at first because they're, they're very tentative and they don't want to be wrong. And because I screwed up so often with Yannicka, I felt like I really grew in that space and I, it really accelerated my growth. And so that's what I'm trying to do with them. And I don't squash them. <laughs> uh, it's a different in, environment and atmosphere. Um, but you know, it's really uncomfortable for them. And then they get to a place where it is kind of fun, you know, picking about someone's press and picking about like, we're in it because we love it. So that's, you know, that's where we need to get. You, meant, you mentioned about COVID earlier on, having started to think about what the impact is going to be of that when you get back to the pitch, what the state and condition of the athletes is going to be in both emotionally psychologically and physically and have you started to work out what your program's going to look like when you are back on the turf yeah normally in the states uh the way the college cycle works is that you know they finish out their spring term and then they have a handful of months that they're off home and home usually means that they don't have access to turf and so they're they're not playing as much as maybe they should so they get back in august and we always scrimmage in the first practice and it's a thousand miles an hour or kilometers an hour, uh, and it's all north-south play, and every and the number of turnovers is astronomical. And I just anticipate that it's going to be that times a lot more. <laughs> so we've talked with our team in, in Zoom meetings and talking about what we want to look like when we return as a team in August. Like, what do we want to do? Do we want to spend time 
talking about team culture? Do we want to spend time getting hockey fit again? Or do we want to be playing hockey? And everyone obviously wants to just play hockey. So they're making investments in their own personal development and how they're connecting with the new players on the team and how our leaders are taking that that role on in their own different ways that's away from our staff. And then, yeah, our our fitness is going to be key so that we can dive right in. In terms of what the actual hockey looks like, I've been watching, you know, Elliot's got his pictures and and game video up there. He had the little, you know, dashes the other day of social distancing and passing um, that I saw. So hearing from from different coaches in New Zealand and Australia as they they're a couple steps ahead of us and and kind of understanding that. So yeah, I don't I don't know what it's going to look like. We're having a lot of spikes uh, in in terms of reoccurrence, even in California. So I'm just keeping my fingers crossed that we have a season. To be perfectly honest, uh, the universities in the UK they're not they're not doing anything until January, and it's not going to be a competitive season. It's they've described it as a bridging season, Ugh. which would be yeah. interesting. Yeah, but I mean, you know, I don't want to get too political, but here we are in the states and. And our esteemed president is going to have this huge indoor rally with thousands of people. And I'm just like, well, there goes the season. <laughs> the, the one thing I was thinking, actually, from, you know, I've, I've been involved in university sport a lot, and um, both as a player and as a coach. And actually, when you think about it, in the UK, it might, I don't know if it's the same over in America, but there is much more of a, a nature of us against them in the individual moment. So it's like, I really want to beat Edinburgh University yeah. more than anything else. I don't care about a league. I just want to go there, beat them, come back, and we'll have a great night out. To a certain extent, the nature of leagues and stuff isn't really a factor. It's much more about rivalries. So I think it possibly can work, but yeah. because it's more about moments. Yeah, it'll be interesting. I think all, all our different conferences are the same as leagues where you guys have their contingency plans and and our normal season is a 10-week regular season and then postseason on from there. And so I think all the conferences are coming up with their contingency plans about whether it's going to, you know, if we get pushed back to an eight-week season, if we get pushed back to a six-week season, mm-hmm. um, you know, what that looks like. And obviously we have a, a lot of international players um, in the States. And so, you know, them being able to get on campus, is that a possibility? Then they have to do a 14-day quarantine and, you yeah. know, for us, you only have four years of, of eligibility that they're allowed to play. So, you know, is it worth burning that year of eligibility? Yeah. You know, and then, oh, by the way, we're a university and you're supposed to graduate and, you know, go into the workforce and in whatever degree, you know, you've chosen, you know, and where, where is hockey lie in, in those considerations? So mm. it's interesting. And because we, you know, even division one is, is so different from top to bottom. Uh, I think people are, are dealing with things in different ways. A less slick segue, zone or man-to-man and why? Zone, 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 zone. Because uh, in my opinion, it allows you to, uh, the work rate, it, I think, is a lot less, which means you can invest more work on attack. Yeah, I don't like to play defense. I just want to intercept and go forward. And zone allows that. So, you know, if you're playing, playing zone, think automatically you're thinking about obviously space and you're thinking about intercepting in space um, and, you know, fulfilling kind of your own defensive principles and, and allowing the space that you want to allow them and covering the space that you want. And that being said, you know, I, I do think it's, it's more difficult, 
you know, because you do have to work as a unit. And so obviously the communication and the understanding and the decision-making has to come at a much higher level. And so if you have a very young or new team, you're going to make a lot of mistakes. And so you have to have your own plan of, all right, we just, we just screwed that up big time. Now what's going to happen? Um, so, you know, just a, a risk versus reward issue for me. That sort of decision around or preference towards zone versus man-to-man, how does that fit within your program pillars? Hopefully perfectly. <laughs> but uh, if, you're not, if you're not communicating or, you know, we do a lot of um, switching and bumping and, and whatnot within our zone. Um, and, and, you know, one of our top principles is defensively to cover the spine. And so creating that free player and, and being able to use them in the most attacking way possible I mean, it, it requires voices from all over the field. And so, you know, hopefully the, you know, the culture and the, the pillars of integrity and cohesion and the psychological safety piece and all that kind of stuff to trust the person behind me that says for me to step left, even though, man, I really think I ought to step right right now. I, I got to do it. I got to do it. And, uh, you know, it's something you got to practice a ton. And training, I can turn around and be like, why are you telling me to step left? Like, do you not see this? And, you know, that person can be like, ah, I do, but step left because of this or, oh, yeah, okay, I see what you're talking about. And so that kind of growth won't happen if I don't turn around and say, why are you telling me to step left? And it also won't happen unless she tells me to step left. I don't, I don't think you can grow within that space without intentionally, again, intentionally allowing kids to screw up and make the wrong decision. You know, and then it ends up in the back of the cage and, oh yeah, I think we might want to look at that one. <laughs> so, Do you feel indoor is an important development tool for players and why? I, I do not. I actually really dislike indoor. I mean, again, I was a goalkeeper. So, you know, anytime anyone would score than, more than two on me, I, was, I had a really shocking day, I'd say. So, you know, you go in indoor and you got to change your, your whole level of evaluation. I think that's where my, my dislike of indoor stems. And then I think there's a lot of value in it for, for technical skill and, you know, obviously hand speed and, and this and that. But I've also been burned as a coach in terms of recruiting in that there are some kids that are some great indoor players that, you know, I thought, yeah, let's really, let's really get them on our team. And they were not great outdoor players. <laughs> so I think, I think it's a different sport. You know, I, I think there's definitely, um, you know, carry over in the same way that it's like, you know, hockey fives, I think is really interesting. I don't know if I like it, but I, I find it interesting. And I think that there, there's definitely things to be gained and in, in going into a regular, regular side, but yeah, indoor is not my favorite movie. That's why I'm out in California. It's a good job. Elliot's not here. I was going to say like, as the sort of yeah, the, the opposite side of the coin from you, like indoor was the only format I'd score in. So, yeah. <laughs> so you love it. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think it's fun to play. I, uh, you know, cause it is so fast and yeah. you know, everyone's kind of jammed in the same space. And so your interaction with the other team and everything is, is kind of at its max. And I, I enjoy playing it, but I, I think the carryover, it just doesn't work for me as well. If you could replay one moment in your career, what would it be and why? Playing career, coaching career, all of the above? All of the above. Ah, um, obviously, I didn't come prepared for this one. 
I don't know. You know, I, I would I would say some of the the moments working with Yannicka in in perhaps having a bit more confidence and not not getting to those low points so much. But you know, again, those those failures have kind of gotten to me where I am now. So I'm, you know, I don't. It's kind of a a non answer. You know, there's definitely been been times. Uh, here's one. So. <laughs> I, as an assistant coach at, at Duke, we were in the, uh, the semifinals, and it was, it was pretty obvious that, that we were going to take this team, and we were winning. And I, I chose not to advocate, advocate for a couple of my players to put them in so that they would, they would be on the field during that game. I, I chose to keep silent instead. And, you know, they, they weren't players that saw very many minutes anyway, and it was it was a big deal to them and they weren't going to play, you know, once we got to the final four in the national championship, but it was obvious. We were obviously taking this game already. And, um, you know, I didn't put myself in the, in the shoes of, of them as people. I put myself in the role of just being a coach who was thinking about how the current experience would, would help us in the next weekend and, and hopefully get us a big old bronze trophy that you never look at again kind of thing. Of course, you take a lot of pride in, but these kids had invested just as much as those, and um, they just they didn't contribute as much, and I I didn't advocate for them. So that's that's something I think about now. And you know, playing time I think is is always a touchy subject. Everyone goes on a team because they want to play. No one ever wants to go on a team and not contribute, especially women. To be honest, I think men are better at about being. You know, ah, he's he's better than I am, so this is where I am right now. And if I get to be better than he is, then I'll play. Or maybe that's just the grass is always greener kind of situation. But women, they want to be involved and they want to contribute. And um, again, it wasn't it wasn't overall my decision. I wasn't the head coach at the time, but I didn't advocate for them, and I should have. So I think that would that would be one of my biggest regrets. Re- reflecting on that, how has it influenced you going forward in terms of now you do have more autonomy? Yeah, yeah, I think. Um, you know, in my, my first year out here, I perhaps was a bit softer in the sense that, again, we, we weren't about the, the result at the end of the game as much, and because we probably weren't coming off a fat W. And I think I gave a lot of playing time and a lot of space to kids that, that weren't prepared uh, as well. And so, you know, again, our, our program has really, our trajectory has been quite high. So you know, maybe those decisions and being a little bit softer and, and allowing different players those opportunities to play uh, on game day and, and have those experiences, maybe that has contributed to our ability to, to move forward so quickly. But I think that and then, and then having kids uh, myself has, has put me in a, a different mindset sometimes that I think is a better one as a coach. Um, so I think I think initially I was, I was probably uh, a pretty tough assistant uh, and, and I've kind of softened up a little bit. And so now as a, as a head coach, figuring out the times in which to allow space for those kids that aren't quite ready to get on the field, but make sure that they're ready enough so they don't come off feeling like crap. Uh, they don't get totally bowled over. They have some good and some bad and can continue on their own paths. I think that's hard to do. Yeah, very much so because it's, it's individual isn't it and there's there's no sort of like standard journey or trajectory for a person it's very much down to them 
yeah. Talking about this a lot, what does your program actually look like in terms of number of players, number of matches, places in a match day squad? Yeah, so you know, all of our restrictions are set by the NCAA. You know, next year we'll have 22 on our team, two of which are goalkeepers, and everyone dresses for the games. And within that, before quarters, I would say that we'd play probably 16 players a game. So four, five subs, 16 um, field players um, and a goalkeeper. So we would have a, a pretty good interchange going. And then this past year with going to quarters, that's decreased. Again, another reason that I, that I don't think I like quarters quite as well. Mm. So I try so, to be very honest with my players and, uh, you know, it's very important to me that my players know that I value them as people first and foremost, and their playing time has nothing to do with, you know, how I see them as a person or if I like them or, you know, all this other stuff. And hopefully that creates more of a basis uh, in, in trust, but you know, that's a, that's utopia right there. And I, I also know that, you know, if, uh, if I'm not playing, the uh, coach doesn't like me and it definitely exists. So, you know, I try to battle that as much as I can. If I have a, if I have a kid who's really struggling and, and not playing, I actually go out of my way to try to connect with them a little bit more off the field um, and keep them uh, feeling valued. I mean, it's all about their own feeling of value, I think, and their contribution to the team. And maybe that's not on game day, but you know, recognizing what they do contribute and encouraging that to continue, especially with a position like a backup goalkeeper. I think that's one of the hardest positions in the world. Yeah, goalkeepers are like buses. <laughs> Two come along at once. <laughs> I've never been described as a bus before. <laughs> Why, thank you. Let's hope, let's hope it's a good one. Well, you're waiting for one forever. And, then, and you won't have one. You have to make do with something. Right. Uh, and then they then suddenly you have six and you're like oh crikey yeah, yeah. Now i've got to give them all time to me yeah you're going to manage your goalkeeping uh roster similar to your your field playing roster in my opinion so i don't ever want more than three and if you're the third you know that you're in a growth phase <laughs> and you have no expectations because otherwise that just that gets messy fast yeah, it's a, I, I think psychologically it's, it's a difficult position because you can be a really good goalie and not be first choice. Yeah. And you could look around at other teams you're playing and you'd be like, I'd be playing for them, 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 them. But yeah. for some reason I can't get a minute. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, tough, tough psychologically, I think, keeping. Yeah, especially uh, when you need that second goalkeeper to continue to perform at a super high level in training. Yeah, you know, they can't they can't check out just because they're not going to be playing. So yeah, yeah. Okay, if you could only pass on one piece of advice to others, what would it be? What's my audience? It's an open question. Ah, geez. <laughs> I th I think it would be just to uh, not take everything so seriously to allow yourself the grace to not be perfect. Yeah, I think that's the most important thing because if you really want it, that's, that's going to be innate. And so you're going to work hard and you're going to invest in it and you're going to want to do whatever you can to be better. But, you know, no path is a straight line, right? And you got your highs, you got your lows and, and you got different decisions that you're going to regret and different decisions or opportunities that arise that you never imagined. 
you know, if you take yourself so seriously and you can really get bogged down and, and your highs, like if you win the national championship, that's awesome. But no one cares come August. Like, yeah, they care. Like, yeah, I get it. But everything starts at zero. All the records are, at, you know, zero, zero. And so, um, you know, you can't get too high and you can't get too low. You just got to, you know, kind of keep going in the middle. Yeah, vi- victory and can be very hollow, actually, I found. So we had in my last year at, at Nottingham, Trent University, when I was coaching there, we, um, we won a league and cup and it'd been three years in the making. Like we'd got to cup final and lost with a pretty average team. And it was, that was, that felt more satisfying almost mm-hmm. than, than immediately, you know, you've got the euphoria of winning a victory of a cup and you, you know, you buy the scoreboard and it says, uh, in fact, I can see it now. It says six, three win, like, you know, great game. Yep. Um, half an hour later, you're a bit like, what next? Uh, and Maybe just, a little bit longer than half an hour. But. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just a downbeat person. I think, like, <laughs> but and you and you're just sort of thinking like, was it all worth it? All these things that maybe, particularly in interpersonal relationships, you know, you talk about regret. I think that for me is where I would say moments I would regret um, things that go wrong in interpersonal relationship when you. Yeah when you go back and you think you've made these decisions based on trying to get this success and you think, mm, was that worth it? Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, that's the thing. You can't even talk about that win without mentioning the team that lost, you yeah. know? And so that, you know, it's very cliche and I'm, I'm not a big fan of those kinds of things, but at the same time, it's true. It's kind of like, you know, I was saying about our, our one in 17 season, honestly, That's one of my absolute most enjoyable seasons that I've ever been a part of as a player or as a coach. And again, I I wouldn't necessarily want to relive it, but it was absolutely fantastic. And it taught me so much about myself. It taught me so much. I I hope the girls learned so much about themselves. All those kids who have graduated and left the university, every single one of them is, is tied back in and with our program and, and wants to continue to be involved because it was just such a great experience for them. Um, so. Yeah, and I think that that line that you get, you know, not take everything too seriously, allow yourself the grace, not be perfect. If you hadn't got that attitude going into it, that would have been a hellish twelve months. Oh, I, I wouldn't be here. Yeah. I, I wouldn't still be here. No, definitely not. Yeah, and I mean, it's about sport, and particularly like, I mean, field hockey. How many turnovers are there in a game? Like, imperfection is why we love it. And yet I think often we hold ourselves to a standard that that isn't anything like that. If it were something about expertise and and perfection, maybe you could allow yourself to also align with that as a coach, but it's, it's not a game that you're ever, you're never going to play a perfect game. Not once, you know, even if you're a goalkeeper and you have a shutout, you're still making, you know, stupid decisions out there every once in a while, or, you know, you, you wish you could do something differently. So, um, yeah, I just do the best I can. That's all I can say. And I, I try to push, I try to make my best a little bit better, you know, like I said, you know, during this time and, and having a lot of coach development with, with different avenues, you know, such as the, the less field thinking and, and other things like that. It's been awesome. I've I hear- learned a lot about what I don't know. <laughs> you don't know what you don't know, do you? Yeah. Nope. You know. Nope. You can't. 
There's a nice plug. I hear they have a really good podcast as well, if you're thinking. Oh, is that right? Is that yeah. right? I'll have to go on there. I'll check it out. Um, who has been influential in the development of your career? Yeah, so obviously, Janneke has been hugely influential because I was not prepared. Uh, in, you know, I, I don't know. I wish I could have a... I would like to have a conversation with her about uh, what her expectations were. If she, if she knew kind of what my level was and that was something that she helped me and, and really developed me. And that was her version of, of doing that um, because it was absolutely successful on, on her part. I really, um, the second I was, I was done with the Junior World Cup, man, I was a much better coach. Um, the same is true with different, you know, coach certification things. You know, in the US we have this, this certification. And the second I finished my presentation for the level of three, I was a better coach. I didn't actually show that in the presentation. But the process of going through it gave me so much growth. So, you know, she's one that I definitely learned a ton from, not, not just technically and tactically, but, you know, different ways in which of doing things like the way that we do our scouting now. And I, I try to help my assistant coaches um, grow in that space. It's something that, I'll, that I really, really um, value. So she's number one. Uh, number two is Jared Martin who played for the U.S. national team for a long time. And uh, he was the associate head coach at Duke when I was there. So I got to work with him for five years. And he's a uh, head coach, I think, uh, development, U.S. development team right now, or maybe the 21s. I'm not sure. He's, he's always in the mix. And he's the head coach at Ohio State um, currently. And he's someone who has a hockey IQ that is far and away above mine. Um, and he has such a very succinct way of saying things. And he's one who will laugh and joke and um, you know, be relaxed in the right environment, in training even. And then there's a certain time and a certain switch that you know, his performance um, you know, echoes what the performance needs to be and, and when to, to kick the team in the butt and when to leave the carrot in front. You know, and I think his um, his ability to have a, a pulse on what the team needs and what individuals need uh, is is better than any I've ever seen before. He's a he's a fantastic person. So he'd be someone that, that you should talk to. He's just phenomenal uh, and very humble. Always downplays himself and um, and and really he could he could coach at any level he wants. I think. From those two, what have you, what skills or sort of approaches have you taken? You spoke about Yannicka in terms of the video and scouting. What have you taken and implemented into your coaching and your programs? Yeah, I think, um, you know, the general takeaway and the general philosophy of, you know, having fun. You know, I heard Craig Parnham speak, I don't know when it was, this, this past, yeah, in, within the last year. And he talked about his own evolution of, of coaching and, and being able to say that fun was important. And uh, that, you know, when he said that, it kind of validated that I was like, yay, I can say that. Like, it's one of our pillars already. But sometimes I'm like, should it be fun? I mean, we're this competitive Division One team. Like, is, is fun really in the top three? And so, you know, for, for Craig to say that, you know, in front of everybody that he went through that process. And, and that's the way that Jared coaches. I think Yannicka is very good at uh, connecting. She's very much a player's coach. 
Um, so connecting with the players on and off the field. I don't know if I would describe her as a fun coach on the field, but that's, that's great, right? You always want to coach with people that, that you're, uh, you know, I'm not sure I would do something that way if, if I were leading this, you know, but you contribute certainly. But Jared is one that I, I think fun is, is probably, I don't know if it's his number one, but it's certainly up there. And I think you can allow fun to be so important and to, to shine through in your coaching and how you operate your program if you have the competency, you know, and if you have alignment with your student athletes and, and your team about what it is that your goals are. Because if our, I mean, we could do run testing, I could bring you all donuts and that sure would be fun, but it's not going to take us to what we want to do. And if that's what your version of fun is, then, then you, that doesn't align with mine. So you probably shouldn't be here. Um, you know, and once you kind of get those things checked off in terms of, yep, we're all looking for the same thing out of this experience and we're all really competitive and we want to get better every day, which means that we have to invest. Hard work is an expectation. It's not something that, oh, I worked hard today, so I should get playing time. It's like, no, we're all working hard. So if you have that type of environment, I think um, it allows you to, to goof off and screw up. You know, we play handball for warm up. you know, and, you know, when we are designing drills and you know, even if they're very intentional and, and focused, you know, I, I, we should be having fun. So I think, I think the fact that, that Jared coaches in that way and is exceptional in his coaching allowed me to grow in that space that it was okay to do that, you know, and it wasn't just that I was, um, you know, maybe not, a, I wasn't as good a coach because I was trying to make things silly every once in a while, you know, or like in between drills, like I'll goof off with my girls in between drills all the time. I tell the worst jokes and there's like three kids on my team that laugh and it's always the same three. You know, and, and that's like something that you expect as a part of my team. And, I, you know, I kind of like it. So. Yeah, I judge my humor in, in uh, sessions with the kids at school as to how many groans there yeah. are in the make a joke. Yeah. Oh, God, not again. Like, yeah. That's terrible. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> I think there's, a, there's an element in there of, um, and this is me talking about one of my biases, but being authentic as well. You know, it, I, I know Yannicka reasonably well. She's very authentic. And she's her engineering background. It definitely, you can see absolutely. That is who she is. Yeah, one hundred percent. Yep. And, yep. And I think it's that authenticity is like if I feel like that is a key part of me, like having a laugh is a key part of me. Well, then I should be brave enough to make sure that that's part of my training environment because right. that would be authentic, and not fall for this sort of misconception of what coaching must be based on what you see on telly or what you think an environment should look like. Yeah. You're part of that environment. You are influencing that environment. Yeah. So yeah. we don't put an act on because yeah. athletes will not respond to you if, if you're not authentic. Yeah, I think one of the spaces that I'm trying to continue to grow in right now is that, that balance um, of consistency um, because in, in my mind, how I am is very consistent, but the, you know, you say even in, in hockey and in, in all plays, you know, the context is, is very important. Well, I'm, I'm very authentic to who I am. The context is important though. There's a certain time and place for everything. 
you know, and I think it's very easy to, you know, when, when you're in a, a game that you have to win to move on uh, and you're, you're a goal down, like, who am I in that moment? Who am I when we're up five zero? And, you know, there's going to be differences, of course, you know, the stress level of, is different and um, your focus has to be a, a little bit more on point, but you know, who I am should be the same. Um, you know, who I am during a game, who I am, you know, relaxed before, after a game, who I am in the office when the kids pop by, you know, I think I'm, I'm pretty authentic to that, but I don't know if, if I'm viewed as fully authentic. You know, we all get to that point where you want to drive the square through the round hole and you want it in there and you're going to do whatever you can to do it. Um, and so I don't think that's being inconsistent, but it has to be within your same framework. Uh, and I think the, there are definite, definite times I get out of that framework when I get really frustrated um, and, and emotions are high. So that's, that's a, a place that I'm working. When the umpires are just terrible and so much rides on that game, and you know how hard your team has worked and it's just like an injustice to them. It's like that, uh, you know, I'm not going to laugh then. I'm really not, but... Um, you know, I, I definitely talk to the umpires, but I joke with them, you know, like, ah, man, really thought I kicked that one all the way across the field. Or, you know, like, I'm just, you know, I don't know. Can I swear? Well, it's up to you. Katie Brown. Oh, great. I'm just an asshole sometimes. <laughs> but, you know, I try to be a funny asshole and most of the umpires will look over at me and chuckle. So that's great. You know, and I know I'm getting some laughs from my bench. So, you know, and that, that kind of takes the, the steam off for me you know, mm. rather than, than pressuring in. So, so I intentionally try to do that. I heard Elliot's miking himself up and uh, that's something that Craig Parnham has, has done within our coach education in the U.S. is, you know, having the camera be on the coach and having the mic on them and evaluating, you know, how it is you coach, not what it is you're coaching, but how you're coaching. And I think that's, um, I think that's awesome. I, I would like to do that again because uh, I do think I've grown a lot, you know, my first year as a head coach versus now, I think I've grown a lot. And so I'd, I'd love to do that again. I need to. Yeah, it's um, with, with most things, you know, kind of what we touched on earlier. It's finding the time to put that in when, you know, moments like this when we're on pause, all that, you know, we can create the greatest plans in the world, can't we? But then when it comes back down to yep. the meat grinder of real life, trying to find time for that but working out ways to to reflect uh you know i reflective practice for me is the is the cornerstone of coaching so working out those those pause moments and those moments to reflect is is got to be crucial for for driving your your, yourself and your program forward yeah well we ask that of our student athletes all the time right Mm. you know we do individual meetings you know before a season after a season throughout a season you know, and we, you know, the way I coach is, you know, ask them questions. Well, you know, how do you think you're doing at this or, you know, this and that. So, you know, we have our own version of that, you know, as a, in a coaching profession and in an athletic department, of course, you're being asked those questions of your administration, but, you know, there's, there's really no uh, coaching development within that. It's more program management. Yeah. Um, so, I think. Yeah. My my struggle with that is the natural pessimism of being English is that reflecting can be, it can take you in a dark place. 
because it's like, oh, that was shit and that was shit and uh, oh, why didn't it do that? Why didn't it do that? So trying to frame within that mo- um, some sort of counter check of positivity, some like positive self-talk into that to to just keep keep some sort of balance. So yes, you can identify things, but it's not the end of the world. Like, yeah. and how are you going to move forward and and actually identifying things that were really positive? I struggle with I struggle massively with praise. Do not deal well with being praised. Mm. Um, Neither yeah. does the, my English player. Well, there you go. It must be a cultural thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I, I mean, like, I know people who are in this country who are driven by that anyway. So. But yeah, I just, I just find it really socially awkward. Yeah, it definitely is. And, you know, I think, uh, you know, that psychological bravery piece, you know, that's, that's really only something I've developed in the past handful of years. And, you know, I, I remember going into different uh, reviews as an assistant coach and just, man, my anxiety level could not have been higher. And, you know, to the point where the first thing is said and my eyes start leaking and I'm like, what am I even crying about? This is stupid. You know, and, and I guess that's where the, the not take yourself so seriously. Like if I can, if I can really live that, um, then, you know, it just allows you to, to move forward more quickly and it's more enjoyable, you know, but it's certainly not comfortable, you know, to, um, you know, to, especially to watch yourself on camera, that's obviously the, listen to your own voice is like the worst thing ever, you know, and then to go beyond that and, and be evaluated by someone it's putting yourself in a position for failure. And that's, you know, I, I think anyone would be lying to say that, you know, that's an enjoyable experience when yeah. in the midst of it, it's usually enjoying afterwards, but when you're in the midst of it, it's not very fun. Yeah. Yeah. Completely agree. Yeah. Right. Okay. So, can you summarize the key points of your philosophy and have there been any key moments that have helped shape it? Oh gosh, I feel like we've been talking about that for half an hour. Um, the way we do the interview is very clear. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, you know, different moments of, uh, or, sorry, my, my dog wants to make an appearance here. Yeah, different moments of, of screwing up and different people allowing me to screw up. And uh, I guess, you know, as I screw up, I'm still a good person, uh, allowing me that space. And then, yeah, our, you know, just our, our season of not being successful and, and having it be one of the best seasons I've ever experienced. You know, I, the me before that happened, if I had known that we would be one in 17 before that happened, there's no, there's no possibility I would have taken this job. Zero. And, um, you know, that's, that's not who I am. Again, you know, when we first started this, I'm not smart. I'm not very athletic. I'm not gifted in any way. Art, I draw stick people, like, but I am very competitive. So, you know, one in 17 sounds a, a bit like death. It, it made me grow a lot during that time and, um, and figure out what my values are. I think that was the, the most important thing. And then honestly, you know, I don't, I don't know if you've had other people say this, but honestly, having children of your own, I think makes you, you grow a lot. My daughter, my older daughter is completely unathletic. She just made the gymnastics team and I'm like, really? You want her on the team? Okay, we'll see how that goes. And then my four-year-old can do anything. She's the most athletic person I've ever seen. And having been through, you know, my, my nine-year-old, lots of tears at this. And uh, she, you know, has to go through some, some testing at, at school at some point because she's got some, some learning issues. And 
man, I love that kid to death, obviously. And she's a great person. And so to kind of, to take all of that and, and recognize that you're working with someone else's little person, it's made me grow. Uh, because again, you can win the national championship, you can win games and, and, and all of that. But if the person walks away after winning and, and they don't want to, to be an alum of your program and they don't want to contribute and they don't want to connect like this afternoon, I have uh, a connection with alums of my own program. I can't wait. I can't wait. It's awesome. Oh, and here's my four-year-old. Okay. I'm on the phone right now. Can you close the door? Apparently the answer is no. <laughs> Do you want to see Will? You want to say hi to Will? Come here. Hi. Uh, now you're in for it. So, what's your name? Yeah. He said, "What's your name?" Paige. This hey. is Paige. And my last name's Bodie, and Mom just calls me PJ, and my middle name's Louise. <laughs> wow, that was a very interesting order to give those names in. <laughs> I like that you jumped around. What's your dog called? What's her name? Daisy. 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 Is, the, yeah. is your dog's na last name Bro Brody as well? Uh, yeah. Yeah, all right, okay. Does, <laughs> does Daisy have a middle name? We haven't, we haven't thought of that yet. All right, okay, well. Well, if you, could give, if you could give Daisy a middle name, what would it be? You can pick any word you want. I think... Um, I don't know. You don't know. Yeah, no. Daisy, bad dog, Brody. I think that's what we should name her. No. 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 Daisy Barks. Daisy Barks, yeah. Daisy Barks, Brody. Bet you haven't had a four-year-old on your podcast yet. No. <laughs> oh, well, apart from Elliot, obviously. You're going to be doing some editing later today. <laughs> no, that's I... Right. What? We have a secret hiding place. A secret hiding place. Yeah, and it's called the secret the secret hiding spot. <laughs> if if Paige, if you tell people that you have a secret hiding place, is it a secret? Board. It has a board, so I guess you can't. You okay, can fair, fair enough. It, but yeah. Where is it? We have a whole big of a Barbie stuff. Barbies, yeah. That's yeah. The thing right now. I'm, I'm very jealous. Barbie dream house. You've got a Barbie dream house. Yeah. In your secret it hiding got, place. It got all different accessories. <laughs> <laughs> and it's in uh, the living room. Yeah, it's in the living room right now. All right, why don't you head back in so I can wrap up with Will, okay? But come see this. I will as soon as I'm done. You know what? What? I moved the whole bench in the scrying spot. I found the whole thing. lost toys? Yeah. That's phenomenal. I moved it so strong my arms won't even break through. Oh, wow. That's yeah. pretty strong. I did the whole thing by myself. All right. Hey, I'll see you in a minute. Well done, Paige. It was lovely to meet you. Did you hear? Yeah. Bye-bye. Okay. Yeah, what do you say? Hey. Oh. <laughs> okay. All right, I fail as mom. <laughs> Thanks. Well, if you didn't know she had a secret hiding place, you do now. So. Yeah. No, it's, it's not very secret. Yeah, so. 
Sorry about that. <laughs> Do I? But anyway. It was, perfectly, it was perfectly timed. Yeah, it kind of was. Kind of was, but yeah. I think, I think there, was, there was one phrase, that, um, obviously I don't have kids, but there was um, one phrase that someone said to me is, um, I think it was my, my, head, my first headmaster when I moved to the school. He was like, um, the one question he always asks when appointing someone is he'll ask the referees, is it the person you would want coaching your kids? Mm. And I think that's something that coaches working within the youth space have got to think about is that they are, the, uh, if for a moment of time in these people's lives, the guardians of someone else's kids. And are you taking that responsibility on? Yeah. And even if it's not, you know, I understand what you're saying about guardians, but it's like, um, you know, if they, if they want to be out there, you know, I think there's different, you, what the kid is ready for has to align with the purpose and the philosophy because, uh, so I grew up doing gymnastics and I, um, I played or played, I competed at a very high level and my coach was the worst human being alive. Maybe not the worst, but close. Um, he was mean. He was brutal. Couldn't have cared less about us. And, you know, I was, you know, at my oldest, I was 11. Um, and uh, he was, he was a miserable human being, but he made me good. Uh, and so I wanted to be good. And so it was, uh, I, I don't know if I'd want that environment for my child who is not good at gymnastics, but you know, for this one, who I think that she kind of has uh, a little bit more of a future and her personality more lends to that a little bit more, you know, that might be what's best for her with, you know, different layers of support under it and maybe money set aside for counseling later. <laughs> but yeah, there's, um, there's an amazing, uh, I'm not sure if you'll get it in, in the USA, but certainly worth looking out for. BBC documentary and it's called Storyville, which I think is a series of documentaries and it's uh, called Olympic Dreams of Russian Gold. Oh. It is one of the hardest things I've ever watched because you, you cringe all the way through, but it's basically these two Russian gymnasts training for, I think it's Rio. I think it's the Rio Olympics or maybe London one or two. And the way that the woman in charge of the program deals with them. Yeah. So there's, there's tiers of coaches in this program. So they have their personal coach and then this overarching woman. It's just horrendous. Yeah. Yeah. And, you're, but, you're not a human. You're a, that's, that's what you're supposed to do. You're, you're part of the machine here. It's, it's really, it's a really interesting insight into a, very different coaching world um and obviously different culture you know Russian culture is very different well there's uh, there was a coach over here probably the most successful in terms of wins and losses and championships coach uh, beth anders who also coached our, our national team our women uh different points and um she she was style of coaching you know and sure you've heard about Bobby Knight you know and um, you know, and stuff that this woman did but like that style of coaching that uh, that used to be the dictator and the you know really harsh um, you know it, it, 
still exists and uh you know that woman is really successful but i'm mm -hmm. i don't want to coach that way you know going back to your point about authenticity like i've been in that environment and um you know had i not had a, a pretty severe injury i i, I probably would have never played field hockey because I would, I would be a, a gymnast and pretty high level, but um, yeah, it's, it's just not who I want to be. And I, I, I don't, I don't want to try to go away. So, um, you know, that to me is more important than the wins and losses. And, you know, maybe that means that for me, I'm at the right program. You know, we finished uh, 35th in the country last year, you know, but I don't necessarily think you have to, to be that sort of environment to be number one either. So I think, I think it takes longer though. I think, yeah, I think it's like, be really clear how you're judging success in your environment. What, what is success for you and your players? And take into account all of the different cultural stuff that's going on, organizational pressures, all of that. And be honest with yourself, what is success? And again, media depiction of coaching does come back down to this binary win-loss ratio. I think the longer that you're in it and the more that you reflect, it's so much more to do with your interactions with people and the influence that you have on people. And depending on you know where you are in terms of age group that you're working with. For me, when I was working at university level, it was such a privilege because you've got these kids coming in at 18, uh, leaving around you know early 20s, it's for some of it's the first time they're away from home and they're they're so young and they don't think it either but it's just a, a real big period of change and it's just a great time to be around them you feel so responsible for them likewise at school like yeah i'm working with people currently from the age of seven to the age of 18 19 you know you see a huge change in these people and they're going through massive ups and downs and that's just a real privilege to be able to support them rather than say, oh yeah, we've got to a national final. Oh, we won a gold. Yeah, that's great when you do it. That is great when you do it because it means a lot to those people. Um, and they've worked hard for it a lot of the time. But I think it's much more to do with how you can support people. In my yeah. Well, I think if you can, you know, if you can get to the national final and you can do it in a way that is authentic and that aligns with all of your principles, but nothing's better, I'm sure. Yeah. I, I don't know yet, but, um, you know, having been to, you know, the national champion twice as an assistant coach, that's definitely how Pam, Pam Boston ran her program. And, and I do agree with her. She values her players and she, you know, and, I, you know, she did it in what I would consider the right way. Um, so, you know, sustaining that and uh, that balance of, you know, not pushing, but motivating and doing it together when the turnover of the university system, you know, natural with graduation, to have consistent results with inconsistent people. You know, that's where, you know, over here in the States, the University of North Carolina is just so incredibly, you know, noteworthy because, you know, the coaching staff, the head coaches remain the same. But everybody else, the turnover, you know, has just been natural. And yet they're still at the very, very top. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, that kind of dynasty idea is, is incredibly impressive. Yeah. All right. And I have to cut you off because I have to go get the, the unathletic one from gymnastics. <laughs> okay, that's fine. <laughs> or I, could, I really enjoyed chatting with you. That was great.
Yeah, it was good. Uh, it was lovely to meet Paige and Daisy. Yeah, well, she's come back with a cat to show you, I think. Oh, right. Another member. Another it's member of the family. It's a toy cat. Oh, it's a toy cat. I thought it was going to be a real cat. What's the toy cat called? Kitty. I call, I call her Kitty. It's a her, by the way. It's a her, okay. But, but it's both this battery and it needs new battery. What are you going to do? What are you going to do about it? What are you going to do? Dad has some more batteries. Yeah. Dad has all the batteries. Kids and snuck away. Anyway, I got to run. But thank you so much, Will. I, I really enjoyed this. And, um, you know, I okay. I really enjoy all your, the hangouts and the, um, you know, the Zoom meetings that you guys are doing. I, I think they're awesome. And, um, you know, the fact that you've been furloughed and you've come up with this, like that's, uh, it's pretty, it's really, really great. So thank you for, for having them. And hopefully, you know, even when things get back to normal, you know, you can, you can continue this kind of networking of, of coaches because it's, it, I think it's really special. It's something that's such a positive that's come out of this. I have, I have more pets. You have more pets? Yeah, I got more toy pets. More toy pets, how many? Got one, two, three, four. This could go on for a while. Five. 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 Excellent. Okay. Shay's a gymnastic that we need to pick her up right now. Okay. <laughs> this is my life. This is me coding usually, like, you know, during the week and this and that. And then they'll come in and be like, mm. my husband will come in and be like, I don't understand. Why don't you just shoot on goal? And I'm like, Welcome, welcome to my world. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. Hey, great idea. Why didn't I think of that? <laughs> right. Well, cheerio. Anyway, it's lovely to chat. Bye. All right. Let's not bye. Say bye to Will. Bye. Bye, Paige. Bye. So thanks to Britt, Paige, and Daisy for a fantastic interview. It was a lot of fun. I hope you've enjoyed it as well. And there's some really good stuff in there that. Hopefully you can take away and, and support your environments. Anyway, it's great to be back. Obviously, this is the start of season two of the podcast, but there's plenty more stuff in the pipeline that we'll be announcing soon. So stay tuned for more Leftfield Thinking. Bye.